morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be up here bringing you God's Word today as we start uh, two months of read sabbatical and rest. Remember to pray for him uh, during this time. He doesn't like to sleep. Uh, he thinks it's a waste of time. He could be more productive during that time. So uh, my request from you is that you'd pray that he would receive this time as a gift from the Lord um, and that he would just embrace that and be able to to rest. Let's go before the throne. Uh, I need to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great plan of salvation. Thank you for working it out in your son Jesus, dying for us on the cross, forgiving us of our sins so that we might be able to forgive others. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing this truth and your word to our hearts and empowering us to live out the gospel um, to each other and to our family, our friends, and our neighbors. We commit this time to you in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. It was a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to be uh, to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat a Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear the most in that bitter and bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I liked to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces just stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. They were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they conducted, they collected their wraps, and in silence, left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way toward, <clears throat> forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, and the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Oh, Betsy, how thin you were. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. 
Again, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had again and again had to be forgiven. And I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, his hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth just seemed to flood my whole being and bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as they did then. That's an excerpt from a book, I'm Still Learning to Forgive, by Corey Tenboom. If you're not familiar with her story, she was, her and her family, shielded Jews from the Nazis during World War II in Germany and were eventually given up and sent to concentration camps where she was the only survivor of her family. This account, as you guessed, is her meeting one of her captors at that Ravensbrück. That's a brutal story. I don't know about you. Uh, maybe I should just stop right there and we'll let that, let that sink in for us. Man, I forgive you. Three short words that are so easy to say, aren't they? Sometimes they just roll off our tongues, but they're really very hard for us to actually mean and to do. You heard her say it's, it's not an emotion, but she had to do it. Aside from love, I don't think that there's any other biblical topic or subject that's supposed to be such a hallmark of the kingdom of God and that is more near the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christianity itself than this idea of forgiveness. And I also think there's hardly one idea that's more misunderstood and misapplied both outside and inside the church, much to our uh, embarrassment. Forgiveness was an essential part of Jesus' ministry on earth, right? 
I mean, he made a point of including it in his pattern for prayer that he taught his disciples and has left for us. Forgive us our trespasses or our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It should be part of our prayer. Jesus proclaimed forgiveness of sins to a paralytic and to the woman who uh, was at dinner at the Pharisee's house. Do you remember the woman who wept at his feet and washed uh, his feet with her tears and wiped it with her hair? And that incensed the hypocritical Pharisees uh, and and the Jewish religious leaders of the day. They just couldn't believe that he would do such a thing. And it's just a prevalent theme in the rest of the New Testament writings for us. Forgiveness is what we are to be about and who we should be as Christians. Now, the title of Corey's book is I'm Still Learning to Forgive, and I don't want you to think I stand up here as an expert. That That is the title that's applicable to me as well. I'm still learning to forgive. And how many of us live in that distorted reality of thinking that we deserve unlimited forgiveness from God and others? Right? I mean, we want what's due us, and we think that everybody ought to just overlook our faults. And if we do, do wrong, then it should just be granted to us. And from God, we take it for granted that whatever we do is just going to be forgiven. And we want all that we can heap up. But then we're stingy with it ourselves when others need it from us, aren't we? At least I am. I won't speak for anybody else here. <clears throat> or we think we've forgiven someone for someone that really isn't an offense. Like, I know how we all have to forgive Anna Tomlinson when she sits in our seat, right? She comes in, takes over, and, you know, that's such a big affront. We've, we graciously forgive her and find another seat. And then plot next week how we're going to get to our seat sooner so she can't get there, right? Or we forgive Jonathan Beaton when he spills that cup of coffee on us by mistake. Well, as long as it's not our favorite sweater or tie or blouse, we're willing to cut him a little slack in that respect, right? And aren't we just a wonderful pack of forgivers when we give some slack to the AV team for not getting the sermon up on the website a whole 30 seconds after the last note of the doxology, right? We're just such a good bunch of people when we let them go. And we really think that we're doing something great, don't we? When we let those sins uh, pass us, when we forgive those faults. Well, that's not really what we're talking about. The reality is that all of us need forgiveness from Christ himself because of sin. All of humanity is in the same state, Scripture tells us. So we all start out in the same place. And I hope all of you here have actually experienced that reality of forgiveness of sins that only Christ can ultimately give. But we also do need to forgive others, rightly so. We have been offended at times, sinned horribly against, and we need to extend that same forgiveness. I hope probably few of us have had to forgive someone else to the extent that Corey did. I know many of you have your own personal Ravenbrooks, your own personal holocausts that you've had to experience. And I know some of those just on a very surface level. But probably most of us have not actually extended genuine spirit-empowered forgiveness to someone as we should. At least I know I have. I like to, as Reed told us last Sunday, I want to herd those swine a little bit more. I want to keep that one offense back for myself. But as we read from Corey's story, her heart and attitude about forgiveness should be ours. That's what we all should be demonstrating to one another. And 
she gives us some clues. She said it's not her own doing, but it was because of what Christ had done for her. And that's our text today. The kingdom of heaven should be seen and known and experienced through amazing forgiveness. And I hope that that's what we walk away with from today. Now, this is... um, on Wednesday nights, we've been doing a series on the parables. Many of you have been coming out to those and hope you're appreciating them. And this account for us that we just read is comes to us in the form of a parable. So we need to understand a little bit about a parable. The Greek for parable means to place alongside. And Vine's Expository Dictionary defines it this way. A parable signifies a placing of one thing beside another with a view to comparison, right? We would say it's a simile. The kingdom of heaven is like, is how a lot of them start out. And that's exactly, or in our case, um, may be compared to. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to. We have that idea of comparison. And usually told in stories, parables compare or place alongside each other the known and seen physical and earthly realities to help explain unknown and unseen heavenly or spiritual realities. So it's taking things of this earth as Jesus did, the master and the servants and a huge debt to get at what takes place in the heart, what happened at the cross, what happens in heaven's gates. So it's a great mind picture, if you will, uh, an instructive tool, and Jesus used it liberally. They were his way of revealing hidden spiritual truths about the kingdom to those who would come to understand them to a certain degree, like his disciples, whom he's talking to here. And there's another side of that coin. At the very same time that they were revealing truth to some people, they were, he was deliberately concealing truth from other people, from those like Pharisees and the crowds who were basically what we would say his Twitter followers. They were just in it because he was popular for the day. And so these truths were actually being hidden from them through these parables. The theme is, as we've seen always, the kingdom of heaven. And it helps us understand what's taking place. Now another word about parables when we're teaching or preaching from them. We can go too far in assigning um, so much important and meaning to every person, to every action, to everything that's mentioned in there. And it's a real danger and it's something that we want to be careful of. But I think it's pretty obvious what's happening here, right? We all, we all can see what's going on in this parable. Obviously, the theme is the kingdom of God is characterized by forgiveness. Pretty straightforward. Jesus so much as says so through the illustration. And we see three characters, and it's pretty easy, I think, to relate to them, how they play out in this story. God, uh, the king or the master, would stand in for Jesus or God himself in this example, right? It's pretty obvious. And then we have the two servants. We have master one and or servant one and servant two. And they would be stand-ins for us in this exchange. Sinners and, and members of the kingdom of God. So it's pretty easy to see how those fit in. And in addition, we can see at least two relationships taking place. The first is what I call the vertical relationship. And that's the relationship between the servant, or or the king, the master, and the servant. For servant one, we see in that relationship there, there's a debt owed. There had been some loans made. 
And so there's that, that master and servant relationship. And likewise, that would symbolize for us uh, God and humanity, sinners, that vertical relationship, how we stand in relation to God in great debt to him because of our sin. And at the same time, a little bit later, we see vertical translating or should be translating into a horizontal relationship between the two servants, the fellow servants, both working for the same king, servants of the same master, and yet two very different uh, responses uh, to a debt owed, as we've seen. And those two guys represent you and I, right? So we can see this exchange. So let's just take a look at four applications out of this parable. And like anything, there's so much that can be said. We could extract so much. And uh, so you have to pick and choose. And so uh, this is what I this is what I picked and this is what I chose. So um, let's dig in. But we have to take a running start before we get into the parable. If we back up to verses 15 through 20, um, <clears throat> Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, you want to go and tell him your fault or his fault between you and him alone. So it should be a private exchange. If he listens to you, great, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you and that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then if he refuses to listen to the collective, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And this is where a parable picks up. It's on the heels of Jesus just describing all of that. It says, then Peter came up to him and said, well, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In Sunday school this morning, we heard about Love, how much love is enough? Do we just need a C-minus passing grade in order to get to the class and not to live at the level of mediocrity? So, so Peter's saying, well, well really, how, how much do I have to forgive him? And he, then he gives it a number. And seven, seven times? And Jesus replies, not seven times, but 77 times. Or some translations have 70 times seven. And then... Jesus brings us into this parable for the the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. So it's on the heels of Peter's question about forgiveness. How much do I have to extend to my brother that we get Jesus' answer? I need to just say a few words about this, these numbers 7 and 77 or 70 times 7. Peter was under the teaching of the Jewish rabbis of his day, as were the other disciples, as they would be being good um, Jewish young men, and it was their common teaching that you only had to forgive somebody three times. That was it. Kind of like how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? The owl tells us. One, two, three, and then he's in, right? And that's it. All bets are off. You don't have to. You've done your holy duty three times, three strikes, and you're out, we would say. So what's Peter doing by saying, well, seven times? He's upping the ante, right? He's doubled it and added one for good measure. Well, what if I for, what if I go above and beyond, right? What the law requires. What if I strive for that B plus instead of that C minus grade, if you will? So he's really maybe trying to per- impress Jesus with just how spiritual he is or he wants to be. But as we see, Jesus is just about to expand his reality, blow his mind, open up his universe, if you will, 
uh, to the, how the kingdom really works with respect to forgiveness. So let's take a look at the first point here. Let's see if I got this going in the right order. All right. So let's pick up in verses 23 and 25. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The first thing we see from here is that we have much to be forgiven of as humans. Scripture is filled with instruction and word after word of how it is that we are born into this world. Ephesians has some really great descriptors that I like. It says that we are enemies of God, we're blind, we're lost, we're bound in sin, in chains, we're dead to the things of God, we're in a hopeless estate when we are born into this world. Don't let the world around you fool you. Don't be suckered into the chant of the world that everybody is basically good, but then their circumstances and situations corrupt them. Society is bad. Well, how can society be bad if it's made up of so many good people? It's a fair question, so don't be ruled into that. A proper worldview is helpful in understanding what's going on with us, that worldview being our position before God. We are indebted to him because we have offended from day one from the moment that we are able probably to say the word no as infants, and you want to see proof of innate sin and the human nature, just go into our church nursery with the little kids. When one has a toy and the other one wants it, what do you get? No, mine, right? And maybe a whack on the the skull and then some tears. You don't have to go very far or live very long to understand our human condition. We are indebted to God infinitely, if one could say that uh, in a way that's not totally quantifiable. This is a result of the fall in Genesis 3. We used to sing a chorus, and Glenn probably knows way back when, I owed a debt I could not pay, and he paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. We used to sing that all the time. So we are indebted to God. And Paul, in Romans 3, 10 through 18, really kind of reinforces this for us. Um, And it's actually a quote from Psalm um, 14 and Psalm 53. It's a blending of those two. No one is righteous. No, not one of us. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. What's in a, in a grave? Death and decay. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is in their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We are in a helpless state before God. So he is right to say we owe him a debt and he's going to collect at some point. It's within his right as God, creator of the universe, creator of you and I, to collect on a debt 
that we owe him. I could, I could read more, Ephesians 34, uh, excuse me, Exodus 34, 7. God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and their children's children down to the third and fourth generation. And we've earned that penalty that awaits us when we come into this world. Romans 3, again, quoting Paul, the wages of sin is death. So we have a tremendous debt. And as we saw that the king here is going to collect on that from this first servant of his. He had settled with some, and he gets to this one guy who uh, owes him quite a ton. And God will collect. Someday we heard Reed last Sunday remind us the judgment is coming, final judgment, but thankfully is not here yet. So for the Christian, that debt has been collected from Christ at the cross, right? He paid a debt we did not owe. That's all been taken care of there. But if you're unsaved here listening to my voice and you remain in that state until your death, that debt will be collected from you for all eternity, as our parable illustrates. So we are deeply indebted to God because of our sin. That brings us to point two. Thankfully, there is forgiveness available beyond belief. And in this, this parable illustrates the kingdom of God is known by abundant, extravagant, and unfathomable forgiveness. Read for me verse, with me verses 26 and 27. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. I picked these three words on purpose. Today must be uh, 25 cent word day at church. Brian was all about uh, words and definitions in Sunday school today. Um, I picked abundant because it means existing or available in large quantities and plentiful, abundant forgiveness. It's extravagant forgiveness. It lacks restraint in using resources, lacking restraint in using resources. No holding back is what that means, exceeding what is reasonable or appropriate and unfathomable forgiveness. It's incapable of being fully explored or understood. And isn't that true for us here on this earth? We just don't know the depths of our sin that God has forgiven us for. And I think that's why we don't have an appreciation for those that we need to forgive. We don't think we're all that bad a sinner, so we hold back from those who sin against us. So here's this vertical relationship that we talked about, the master and the servant and this huge debt owed in the parable, it says that the servant owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 of anything is a lot. Um, If you had 10,000 pieces of bubblegum, kids, that would be a lot of bubblegum. It would take you a long time to explore that. But it's not a monetary sum. It's not a dollar, five dollars, or a hundred dollars. It's a unit of measure. A talent was a weight. But it still has some value ascribed to it. The ESV Bible online notes that a talent was worth about 20 years' wages for a typical day laborer. So if you do the math, 20 times 10,000, he owed 200,000 years worth of wages. It's a long time to work to pay off a debt, you have to admit. And in today's value, it would be worth about $4.6 billion. It's a hefty sum. But it's really not the actual money that's important here. Jesus is using this idea, this enormous amount, as a vehicle to uh, compare the extremes of forgiveness that are, should take place 
in Scripture. He's not quantifying sin as an amount. It's not penny for penny or, or tit for tat. So he's using it as a way to put in the minds of his listeners, them then and us now, these two extremes to help explain what happens or should in the kingdom with respect to forgiveness. Psalm 103, 8-14 reads, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. There is, thankfully, forgiveness beyond belief available to us. Paul, again, helps us understand this. In Colossians 2, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Christian, we have hope because our debt's been taken care of at the cross and set aside just like this master did with his servant. You see the parallel that he's making for us. The reality that they, his listeners wouldn't fully understand until sometime later and one that we get to partake in as well. There is great forgiveness available because we owe a great debt and I'm so grateful for that. Jameson, I love the way Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown summarized this encounter. Payment being hopeless, indeed. The master is first moved with compassion, next liberates his debtor from prison, and then he cancels that debt freely. That's our God. That's the God that we serve. So we owe a debt. We have much to be forgiven us. But there is much forgiveness available. Thank the Lord. And then forgiveness given to us should lead to forgiveness given to others. Freely you have received, freely give. That's the scripture. Read on with me verses 28 through 30. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So here we see the horizontal aspect that I talked about. What took place in the vertical between the king and servant one, this forgiveness of an astronomical debt, this laying aside of something that he had no hope of paying for in and of himself by his own means, he won't even extend a common courtesy to a fellow servant who owes him much less. But that's what should happen among us the motivation for our forgiveness one to another and even to those outside our Christian family is what God has forgiven us from. The one who has forgiven much loves much. If we don't think we've been forgiven 
of much, and we didn't have that big a debt, we're likely to withhold from others. And Jesus uses this uh, number comparison again to just really get in the minds of his listeners the distance. If you remember, servant one owed 10,000 talents, 200,000 years worth of wages. His buddy, the poor guy sitting on the bench next to him, owed him about $9,000. It was 100 denarii was how a typical person was paid. It was a Roman coin. It was a a wage for a day laborer. And that was about $9,000 in 2009 dollars. So there's just no comparison between what had been extended to servant one and what he was unwilling to extend to servant two. Do you see the point here? is that we have to have a right appreciation for what we've been forgiven of, offending a holy and infinite God, versus extending forgiveness to someone who's just like us, just a regular Joe or Jane, full with the same sinful nature, full of the same flaws, full of the same selfishnesses and and, um, hard-heartedness at times. We don't have a great appreciation for what God has done for us, so we hold that back. But the idea here is like the movie Pay It Forward. You've seen that. Or we would say that adage, one good deed deserves another. Right? There's even some commercials on that where you can see the the guy, somebody's wet and he brings him his umbrella and then he goes down the road and he helps somebody else who's lost their keys and then that person helps somebody with something. I don't know, there's like tenor thing of these uh, all strung together. And of course the golden rule out of Luke 6, do to others as you would have them do to you. I said at the beginning, how do you want to be forgiven? You want all you can get. You want a buffet of forgiveness for yourself. But how stingy are we? We won't even share a fry of forgiveness with someone else who really needs it. And a lot of us have a lot of fries to we need to share. Unlike being humbly grateful like women wiping like the woman wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, our servant played servant one played the part of the Simon the Pharisee. If only he knew who that person was. If only if only he knew what she had done. Scott, you don't you don't know what I suffered as a child. You you don't know how this person hurt me. No, I don't. But isn't it enough that God knows? Is it such a light thing for you that your Savior was affronted in ways that you can't possibly relate to yourself and that he is in heaven watching down on you and knows exactly what's been done to you and how you've been hurt. And as he forgives you for your wrongs to him, ought you not to forgive others who have wronged you? And I'm not talking about spilled coffee or somebody cutting you off in traffic. Some of you have been grossly sinned against horribly abused in emotional and physical ways and relationships torn apart for no valid reason. The hurt is real. So is the forgiveness available to you. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructed his disciples to pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's where it starts. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What was his will? that Christ would go to the cross for the forgiveness of sins. That's his will, that we should forgive others as well. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice the connection. Corey alluded to it. 
and her message as well. We forgive. He forgives as we, as we forgive. Paul helps us here in understanding the motivation that forgiveness given to us is forgiveness that we need to give to others out of Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Kind is pretty easy to do. Most of us can do that. We can fake a smile and a handshake, maybe even a warm hug during that greeting time. We can be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. That's not so hard to muster. Someone's suffering or sick or in need of something, we can be tender-hearted and help them out. We have an extra meal in the fridge, we can bring that by. If we have a spare coat we're not using, well, you're, you're free to have that. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So that's our power. That's our source of strength. That's the impetus for us being able to actually do that. And there are many examples in Scripture. Think back to Joseph in the Old Testament and how he had to forgive his brothers what they did to him, selling him into slavery, lying to his father about his death, wanting him dead, just their jealous rage in order and concocting all of that and living with that lie for so long, about 18 or, or more years at least, that he was there and them living this lie and then he just forgives them. And he says, oh, what God, what you meant for wrong, God intended for good. I'm here now to be able to save you. I'm sure that wasn't easy for him, yet he did it as a shining example. Stephen, as he's being stoned to death for declaring the gospel, at the moment of his death, says what? What's his plea in heaven? Father, forgive them. I haven't been stoned to death yet. But I don't forgive so easily. Or Paul's appeal to Philemon to forgive Onesimus, his slave that ran away. And Paul says, put it on my account. If he owes you anything, if he's done you any harm, not only forgive him, but credit it to me as if I did it. And stop for a moment and think about Paul's life. We just talked to him as the super apostle. He just came in and he was the apostle to the Gentiles and he preached. Stop and think for a moment. Who was he before he was Paul? When he was Saul, what was he doing? He was killing Christians. And then for Christians to take him into their community and say, now you're one of us, have you ever stopped and thought about the amount of forgiveness that those people had to extend? He likely killed some of the family members of the people that he was now fellowshipping with. And we just think, oh, they just took him in because he was Paul. He was a murderer. And they were able to welcome him into the faith. Can we not do the same and if that's not enough, if that's not enough motivation, what was Jesus' cry on the cross at the moment of his death? That's where Stephen got the idea from. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. At the very least, you can have pity for someone and their ignorance of their sin against you, perhaps that they don't know what they're doing or they're not doing it deliberately. And at least under that motivation, will you not forgive them? So that's a forgiveness given to us is forgiveness that should be given by us. And finally, if we don't truly forgive, if we don't have that heart, it's possible you yourself may have presumed on God's forgiveness of you. Read on verse 32 to the end. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
and in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. This isn't suggesting that someone can lose their salvation. As Matthew Henry says, we are not to suppose that God actually forgives men and then afterwards reckons their guilt to them to condemn them. He doesn't say, just kidding, huh? You weren't really forgiven. And now, when it comes to Judgment Day, I'm going to take that back. But this latter part of the parable shows that the false conclusions many draw as to their sins being pardoned and through their afterconduct shows that they've never entered into the spirit or experienced the sanctifying grace of the gospel. It's a warning to us to presume upon the goodness of God and that we have been forgiven. And one of the indications of that is if you are so hard-hearted that you can't forgive someone else, you need to examine your heart and your motives, not the other person. That's the warning and the caution. I mentioned earlier, one who has forgiven much loves much. If you don't love at all, or it's hard for you, or you need someone, someone seeks has to seek your approval to get that love relationship aspect going, you need to examine your own heart. And I say that to myself as well. Matthew, going back to Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive them, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a sober warning right from the lips of Jesus himself. We would be wise and humble to pay attention to that and to heed it. So I'm going to wrap up. First John states that we love him because he first loved us. If I could borrow that for the point today, it would be that we forgive because he first forgave us. That's the source. So sinner, if you're not a Christian here today, we can't make up for our sin against God. That debt is too great. That required Jesus' own blood, the very God-man himself, giving up his life on a cross, shedding his blood. That was the cause of our debt of sin to a holy and infinite God. That restitution was made at the cross through and by Jesus, thank the Lord. It's called atonement, a satisfaction, a payment that was made. Now, Christians live in this reality. We understand to a certain extent what that means. We have been broken by a sense of our sin and and wrong standing before God. But for you non-Christians, if you're here today listening, unless you plead to God for this satisfaction for yourself, judgment is waiting you someday, and God will collect from you for all eternity the debt that you owe him. Our parable tells us so. And the hope is, sinner, that God wants to forgive sin. He expunged the debt of the servant who came to him simply for asking and pleaded, please, please, I'll repay you. He knew it was impossible for the servant to repay him, and so he just forgave it. And he implores sinners to repent and be forgiven. And God forgives a lot. He's been in the business of forgiveness from the very beginning, and he will until the end of the age. And everyone here who is a Christian be a testament to you and a witness to you as to God's amazing forgiveness that is available. It's yours for the asking. And Christian, take heart and measure yourselves. Remind yourself, don't wallow in it. 
Don't wallow in it. Don't stay there. But remind yourself of how much you've been forgiven. And maybe you're young in the faith or young in age, and you've got a lot more sinning to go yet probably if you live to a ripe old age and the Lord delays his return. The measure of forgiveness of God extends to us is what we should extend to others. And that is our motivation and our example to extend to others. I know some of you have experienced horrible things, and there are some I can't even imagine, uh, and things I don't know and probably don't want to know. But if Christ can forgive you your sin from an infinite and holy God, one who is totally righteous, through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you also can forgive those around you. And I encourage you to do so and experience the freedom that Corey did in our story. And finally, for all of us, if we're not forgiving toward others by nature, if this doesn't come naturally to you, there are times when you're going to hold something back. I get that. We're not perfect yet. We still have our pigs in the garage. We're going to hurt our swine every now and then. That happens. It's not to be that way. We should deal with it. But if you're not forgiving toward others by nature, if you are known for a grudge keeper, if people are just afraid of offending you or doing anything wrong because they know how you're going to treat them, you're going to cut them off, you're going to be cold to them, you're going to stop sending them Christmas cards, you're inviting them to Thanksgiving dinner, or whatever it's going to be, you're going to scratch their car in the parking lot or dent it when you see them, then you have reason to be concerned that you're not actually forgiven yet yourself. That's a sober and cautious warning. And I'll leave you with this, and especially as we come to communion tonight. What a great time for us to make restitution with each other. Scripture tells us that if you know someone has something against you or if you have something against someone else, in other words, unforgiveness in your heart, before you come to that table tonight, before you pick up that cup of grape juice and break off that piece of bread for yourself, please go to them and make it right. Please say to someone, if I have offended you, please forgive me. And if they don't come to you, but you know that there's something, you go to them first and say, I forgive you. And then leave it there. Christ died on the cross. He gave us forgiveness. He makes it possible for each of us because of his forgiveness to each of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. For an abundant, extravagant, unfathomable forgiveness. None of us have fully comprehended or understand what sin is against you, but we know that it costs Jesus his life in order to be able to forgive it. May we be willing in a, in a figurative sense to give up our lives, ourselves, to forgive others in that same degree, that we would not hold against others things that you do not hold against us. Oh, thank you. Father, for your great plan of salvation, for forgiveness full and free. Thank you, Jesus, for being obedient to the cross and your shed blood. And Holy Spirit, we thank you and praise you for indwelling us and empowering us to be able to live out this gospel truth and reality among your church and the world at large. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.
you, you are dismissed. <laughs>